The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio, Associate Editor of Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for October 1st, 2022. Earlier this week, Russian President Vladimir Putin granted Russian citizenship to former U.S. intelligence contractor and whistleblower Edward Snowden. Snowden is currently wanted in the United States for leaking information about top-secret U.S. surveillance programs. In 2013, Snowden fled to Russia, where he was granted asylum, permanent residency, and now citizenship. For today's archive episode, in light of Putin's decree, I picked an episode from June 2020. In the episode, Jack Goldsmith sat down with Bart Gelman, journalist and author of the book Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. They spoke about Gelman's reporting on the Snowden affair, the scope of the National Security Agency's surveillance capabilities, and press freedom as it relates to national security reporting. Zachary Frank, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 1st, 2020. Journalist Bart Gelman is the author of the new book, Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. Jack Goldsmith sat down with Gelman to discuss the book. They spoke about Gelman's reporting on the Snowden affair, the scope of the National Security Agency's surveillance capabilities, and press freedom as it relates to national security reporting. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 1st. Bart Gelman on Dark Mirror. So much of your career before you encountered Snowden was spent covering national security. You had significant experience in dealing with classified information and in receiving classified information and in analyzing and understanding it. But this time when you encountered Snowden, it was different. It was different in kind. Can you, can you explain why? It was different in kind because I suddenly had access to an enormous quantity of enormously sensitive documents. No reporter had ever before received even a handful of contemporary code word classified documents. There are times when you hear things that if they were written down would be highly classified, uh, but to actually have the document in your hand in its full context is highly unusual to have what I ended up having, which was tens of thousands of them, was both exciting and uh, disturbing because it it seemed to me that I had a huge responsibility to keep safe the parts that should be kept safe. And that mean, that means a lot of things. That means that you needed to secure it from foreign intelligence services, and that also means you needed to decide what should or shouldn't be published, right? Right. I had to decide what should or shouldn't be published. I had to understand the legal risk. I had to understand the information security risk that I faced. I knew that it was going to paint a big target on my back to let it be known that I had a large quantity of documents and that I was holding back some of what I had. In fact, I was holding back a huge amount of what I had. So I'm essentially notifying every hacker and thief and foreign intelligence service on the planet that I have this valuable cache of data. I'm also concerned throughout about the possibility that the American government will decide to come and try to take it back. And so, I mean, to the extent you can describe it, what what steps did you take? You describe yourself in the book as an amateur playing against professionals, but you really weren't an amateur. You had been, you're pretty adept at at security, how confident are you that you were able to keep it secure and 
to the extent you can describe it, to what steps did you go to? So there are various aspects of security here. Um, one is that I don't allow myself to lose the data, essentially backup. And where do you put a backup if you're worried about someone coming in trying to uh, take away all your copies, which I was. And we could get to this later, but I was right to be concerned about that because I later found out that Keith Alexander, the director of the NSA, was calling an internal debate for the government to uh, stage a raid and seize all copies of all the documents from reporters to stop us from publishing. So backing it up and finding good hiding places for it was one challenge, and I think I won't talk about the hiding places. Right, of course. Uh, but the, the, you know, the other was preventing it, you know, any copy from being stolen by someone outside the U.S. government. And there I took all the standard kinds of uh, precautions that would be taken inside the U.S. government or in any secure facility as best I could. So I took a computer and uh, physically removed the networking hardware from it so that it could not accidentally touch the internet. I removed the battery so that if you just pulled on the power cord, it would immediately go dark. Uh, I encrypted the hard drive and I encrypted the files within the hard drive using a physical encryption key. That is to say, we're using a digital encryption key that was stored on an external drive that never got stored with the documents so that there would not be in the room at the same time unless I was there, both the encrypted documents and the decryption key. I put that in a safe, put the safe in a locked room. I put a video camera uh, on the door to the locked room and so on. Uh, the locked room had no windows uh, to try to do what best I could to defend against uh, a tempest attack, meaning an attack in which someone could amplify and receive the emanations from the computer monitor and read the documents from outside the room. And yet, as I said, I was an amateur playing against professionals. And there are there are spy agencies with the capability of going through or around, more likely around, the precautions I took and finding side channels to go after me. I. I honestly was trying to make it as hard as possible to do this so that if they were going to go after the documents somewhere, they would find an easier target. So you talk in the book a lot about the machinations that led to Snowden deciding who to use as his vehicles for publishing these documents. And the main choices were you and Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras. Why did he choose you? I was not Snowden's first choice. He was looking for advocates and uh, voices of defiance against uh, state security. He was looking for sort of a full-throated defense of his principles and of, of him personally. And he found that in Glenn Greenwald, but he couldn't get to Greenwald for a while because Greenwald ignored his approaches. Greenwald received emails from one of uh, Snowden's anonymous handles. I think the first one was from someone who called himself Cincinnatus. And it said, I have important information for you. Uh, you'll need an encryption key for me to send it. Please send me your encryption key. Greenwald ignored that. Uh, Snowden then went ahead and made a video, an instructional video anonymously and posted it on the internet and pointed Greenwald to that, which said, here's how to make an encryption key. It's not so hard. Just click here, click here. And Greenwald ignored that. So Snowden turned to Laura Poitras uh, next, and Poitras turned to me because she knew I knew something about the subject, and uh, we had known each other as fellows together at NYU. From there, uh, Snowden had to convince himself that he could trust me. He was highly suspicious of mainstream media. He believed that I or the Washington Post would be afraid to publish a story against the wishes of government. He doubted my commitment or the Washington Post's commitment to uh, going ahead with a story that would that would uh, be described as damaging by the government. And I had to convince myself that he was for real. The threshold 
for convincing me that you have spooky secrets uh, describing a scandal in the U.S. intelligence community uh, is <laughs> very high. You get a lot of nutcases and misguided people bringing tips when you're a national security reporter. And I assumed at first that this was just another one of those. But you, you became convinced otherwise. Correctly. So just one more point on how he chose you. So in some sense, what you're saying and what the book reports is that you kind of got lucky that Greenwald, that Glenn Greenwald didn't answer his email message from Snowden. Is that right? Uh, I absolutely did get lucky in that way. Uh, Snowden then checked me out. I mean, uh, I have reason to think that he he looked at Angler, my book about Dick Cheney, which had a couple of long chapters on warrantless surveillance in the uh, Bush-Cheney era. And he read whatever he wanted to read about my background. And he questioned me <laughs> closely about everything that had happened to me since high school when I sued my high school principal for on, on a First Amendment case. And uh, he eventually decided it was worth a try. He had kind of an engineer's approach to this thing. If one of us didn't publish, then maybe the other one would. Yeah, but I think that overall, even though it kind of happened accidentally, that the choice of the three of you, you might not agree with this, but the choice of the three of you may have been the optimal way to go. I mean, you brought you brought a credibility and an analytical capacity and ability to, and an ability to report it in a way that I don't think Greenwald could. He had different standards and different goals. Poitras had different skills. And even though it's not what he intended to do, I think it in terms of him getting his message out credibly and fully, I think maybe the three of you may have been the best approach. Do you agree with that? Oh, I think from his point of view, uh, that's exactly correct. I mean, Laura brought, she did lots of good and important print reporting in uh, in sort of team efforts, first with The Guardian and then with Der Spiegel. Uh, but then she brought the story to film, uh, which is an entirely different medium, and uh, she did it very powerfully in Citizen Four. Glenn brought him all the sort of lightning and thunder that he wanted and uh, broke up a, a lot of important stories himself. And I did what I did. So yeah, it was a, it was a good combination for him. And how would you how would you characterize what you, you what you did in terms of and compared to the other two? I mean, I mean, I guess it's fair to say you are a, a mainstream, accomplished national security reporter, one of the best in the business, if not the best. And you were working with the Washington Post, and you had all this background. So, what what was the distinctive? What was your distinctive contribution? Well, I I brought my own uh, experience, uh, my own ability to find external sources to the story. So there were. There were some stories in the documents that were just as simple as, well, look, you know, we found we found this document. Uh, let's sit down and write a story based entirely on the document. Uh, there were a few like that. There were important ones. But most of the stories required a patient piecing together of internal clues and an ability uh, to bring outside expertise to bear and outside sourcing to bear to figure out what they meant. These were documents, by and large, that were written by and for insiders with all the kind of secret inside language that you get in, you know, in any field, uh, filled with acronyms and cover names that were not defined um, in the document, uh, and you know, shorthand technical phrases or operational phrases, and they were baffling at first glance, and at second and at third. I sometimes said, well, this seems like a clue. Uh, this looks important. And I would go charging off down the wrong direction and eventually find that's not the right direction. I've got to take a different one. And I would find sources, uh, both in the private sector and the public sector, who could help me understand them. So that kind of work was more likely to be done by me than uh, the others because they didn't have the same kind of sourcing. So let's turn to what you found, what Snowden revealed. The, subtitle, the title of your book is Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. So you do an extraordinary amount of reporting, of varied reporting and deep reporting about the American surveillance state and what it consists of in, in remarkably accessible ways, given the technical stuff. 
I have to say, I have a hard time summarizing you know, what you found and, and, and how one would characterize the American surveillance state. At one point, you stated, I'm quoting from the book, the NSA, like the eagle astride the globe on the first page of the first document that Snowden gave me, really does hold the world's telecoms in its grasp. It cannot yet reach every bit and bite, but it comes near enough. That is, I think, the broadest uh, characterization you gave of the, the NSA's reach. How would you characterize it? I mean, how does, how does one even come to understand what we're talking about here? Well, the first thing to understand is that the NSA's mission is to uh, defend American secrets and steal other people's secrets. Uh, it aspires in principle to be able to reach any data that is transmitted or stored anywhere on the globe. That doesn't mean that it collects everything, but it, it sometimes aspires to that. It aspires for sure to the ability to collect anything. And for that, it systematically penetrates every defense it can find. It, it has uh, a large function called signals development, which means looking for stray electrons and photons anywhere it finds them and saying, what is this? How can we understand what it is? How can we uh, crack into it? How can we exploit it? Uh, and in its broadest mission statement, the uh, NSA with its uh, four principal allied services. They're known together as the five eyes. It's US, UK, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. Uh, they had a big conference at one point, and there was a presentation that said our, our goal is to collect it all, to exploit it all, to uh, process it all, and to share it all. That remained... Uh, a sort of an unfulfilled ambition, but it really was the ambition in large in large terms of, of the NSA, uh, which meant that it did both targeted collection, which uh, it would say, I'm after this person, this secret, this agency of the, this foreign government. Uh, and it also did what, what it calls bulk collection, which is high volume sort of vacuuming in of entire data flows on the crossroads of the internet. So that's an, that's an extraordinary description. That, that leads to what you refer to a couple of times in the book as the NSA's volume problem. And I've, I've heard this discussed since I worked in the government 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And I imagine the volume problem is worse today than it used to be. Can you talk about the volume problem? Right. Well, the volume problem is something talked about internally all the time. And it's, uh, it's often talked about in the context of the uh, agency's large access exploitation machinery. Large is not a term that's used lightly at the NSA. <laughs> it refers to, you know, if, if, you, if you picture the thickest water pipes, uh, you know, the, the mains uh, flowing at some stupendous rate, uh, when you try to put yourself, you know, in, in the way of all that water, uh, you're going to be deluged. And the NSA is truly trying to deal with oceans of data, more data on any given day than all the world's data in all the years combined, you know, up till maybe about the year 2000. The exponential growth of digital information is more than, you know, any surveillance machinery uh, is capable of handling both in terms of flow rate and, uh, and storage. Uh, but they do their best, um, and they do their best by trying to filter out the junk. Uh, there's always a noise-to-signal ratio. Um, there's, you know, imagine capturing all the spam sent all around the world. If you're going after email, you don't want the spam, except maybe if the spam is has hidden messages in it. That would be a good. That would be a good place for someone to hide hidden messages if they thought it was being filtered out. Exactly. So. Or, or for example, there's a there's a program under which the NSA stands at the major junction points of the internet, and as the as the data goes by, it grabs anything that looks like a contact list or an address book. Uh, there are lots of times when you log on to your email and your um, 
saved addresses are uh, transmitted across the internet so that they're uh, ready and waiting for you on your computer uh, when you compose a message. They want address books that are connected to individual accounts. So um, here goes Jack's and here goes Bart's address book. Let's collect that. Uh, not that they're targeting accounts at that point, but any individual account they want because they can put those together and build enormously rich social network information that way. They don't want address books that float around free of accounts because they, they, you don't know who they belong to and they, they're not helpful to you that way. And because of the way Yahoo sent address books, uh, there was a whole lot of uh, free-floating uh, sort of unclaimed address books around the internet. They considered that junk and worked hard on figuring out ways to filter it out because it was clogging up the pipes. About 15 years ago, I think it was, General Hayden, during testimony in trying to get a reauthorization for one of the bulk collection programs, he referred to the United States' enormous home field advantage, uh, and he was referring to collection capabilities. And I believe he was referring to transiting traffic and the fact that U.S. internet and telecommunications firms are, are so globally prevalent. Can you talk about that home field advantage? And apparently it's it has to have diminished over time, especially since Snowden, but what what is the U.S. home field advantage? The home field advantage has to do with the initial design and then the organic growth of the internet um, and global telecommunication systems more generally. Uh, it just turned out that we built so much infrastructure and, uh, and were so influential in the creation of and, and uh, development of the internet, that a large fraction of the world's uh, communications, even communications that were not beginning or ending in the United States, flowed through U.S. territory, flowed through large uh, links that happened to be located in the United States. Um, electrons take the fastest route, which is not always the most uh, direct linear route, um, and they break into packets and separate during their journey and get reassembled at the endpoints. And likewise, telephone calls take the cheapest route, which is not necessarily the most direct route. So someone could be calling from Madrid to Bogota, nothing to do with the U.S., but their phone call would get routed through exchanges uh, in, let's say, Miami, uh, and likewise, um, internet communications. So you could just sit here on your own home field and, uh, and as you said, uh, capture traffic that was transiting. That's true to some extent almost anywhere that there are stray communications that, that pass through some third country, but it happened more here than anywhere. And what about U.S. telecommunications firms that the, that the United States government can exercise either coercive power over or sometimes power in a non-voluntary way? Right. So uh, if you have most of the world's dominant players in uh, in the information technology field, you sort of, let's just start with, uh, with, with Google, Microsoft, Yahoo, Amazon, Apple. You, you have right there a very large fraction of the world's data services and, and communications, and the list goes on. And yes, the U.S. government has legally coercive power in which you show up with a court order, including an order from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, uh, and they have to turn over data. They have bought data that the firms thought they were allowed to sell, depending on the time period. You know, this also goes for AT&T, uh, which has cooperated with the NSA since um, at least back to the 1970s and, and the other large telephone companies uh, by and large. So the National Security Agency is actually very, very, very heavily regulated. There are very detailed legal restrictions. There are internal restrictions and guidelines and norms. And if you're an operator inside the NSA, you spend a lot of your time wondering where, why you need all these constraints and where they come from. So looked at from the vantage point of inside the NSA, I think that they think they have their hands tied against the baseline of what they could be doing. But you looked at all this stuff, and as you described it, if the NSA can potentially reach everything and is trying to reach everything and is trying to collect everything, 
you ask the question, is there room in that picture for self-restraint? And what seems like self-restraint inside the NSA, and there is enormous self-restraint, I, I believe, in the larger picture might not be self-restraint. So just I'm just asking you to reflect upon the efforts by law and norms to control this giant thing. Sure. The the NSA is heavily regulated. Uh, I, I never made the claim that it was lawless. I never made the claim that it was rogue. The NSA does not dream up its own missions. It's given an enormously detailed menu of of information demands by U.S. policymakers in a formalized process um, every year. Uh, we want to know the following <laughs> 1,000 categories of information, uh, and these are high priority. And the political system is such that it does not tolerate failure of any intelligence agency to detect and anticipate any bad thing that could happen in the world. Uh, and so with that in mind, the NSA is going to cast its nets as broadly and widely as it possibly can. Uh, but yeah, it's got levels of supervision over requests. It has, you know, they've gone from the Fourth Amendment and Executive Order uh, 1233, which is the foundational authority for all intelligence agencies and their overseas operations. They've gone from that to, in the NSA's case, uh, a uh, highly detailed uh, Defense Department directive, and then an even more detailed NSA directive uh, that translate uh, the restrictions into rules and regulations. There's an inspector general, there's uh, oversight by uh, the Department of Justice uh, to some extent, and then in its domestic operations, that is to say, in its, uh, its operations based with domestic equipment or on domestic territory, um, it's supervised by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and by the Intelligence committees in Congress. The court has no jurisdiction, and Congress has much, much less information about operations that take place overseas. And there you have, I think, actually uh, one of the toughest challenges facing an attempt to kind of get the balance right, because what the NSA does overseas has a huge impact on the privacy of Americans at home. These operations under Executive Order 12333? Yes. So you do some new reporting, inter interesting reporting on in the book on the call records program, the metadata program, which the NSA, I believe, has announced that it's no longer going to conduct. Um, I think this is in part because of legal difficulties and difficulties with actually complying with the law, not because they don't want to, but, but because they can't. But also, I think it's enormously expensive and also not necessarily yielding a lot of fruit. But having said that, my operating assumption, whenever the NSA gives up a program, this was my reaction to the end of the crypto wars in the 1990s. And this is just based on having read a lot of books about this. My operating assumption is that whenever the NSA gives up something, they do so because they found a more efficient and more secretive substitute. They found another way to get there that was more cost effective. Is that a general? What do you think about that? I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, look, what, when the NSA is offered a menu in which it discovers that it can get at a certain body of data this way, uh, that way, or the other way, it usually chooses all of the above because it likes the redundancy and it likes uh, especially the additional reach it gets that way. If you take data from Facebook by presenting a court order uh, for you know the following selectors, you get the most thorough and uh, and the richest uh, store of content about that one account. You can't ask for data that matches impersonal selectors. You can't say, uh, "Give me everything that mentions apples and oranges, but not pears." But if you're tapping directly into uh, the data centers. That Facebook has overseas, then you can you can get your information that way. Uh, and as far as the metadata, I think you're right. I think that if the NSA gives up one program, it's because it's figured out a more efficient way to get at it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So you make clear in the book, and this is one of the things that gave Snowden pause, I think, before he decided to work with you. You make clear in the book that you hold back information from publication. And it sounds like a non-trivial amount of information. 
and I, and I think it's important to say that in the book you make very clear and you quote national security official after national security official about how absolutely vital these programs are to U.S. national security, to, to U.S. power, because intelligence collection enables us. To, it's just an advantage, potentially, that we have over our adversaries along every single dimension of international relations. So the stakes of publishing this stuff are very high. And we'll talk in a second about trade-offs and the role of journalists. But I just first want to know, how, how do you think about in this context, when you've got all this data of super secretive stuff that implicates national security in such a serious way, and in a context where uh, these are very sensitive programs to the extent that once they're revealed, it's not like they immediately evaporate, but there's the potential that they will, because once the adversary knows how the collection is being done, it can simply do another way. So in this context, and you should question my characterization if you want to, but in this context, how do you decide what to publish and what not to publish and why? So the way I look at it uh, begins with two first principles. Um, one is that the stakes include self-defense. Uh, they include national security in, in the broad way that you described it. And they also include self-government the functioning of a democracy. Uh, and it seems to me that the fundamental policies, the fundamental boundaries between uh, the government and its citizens, the fundamental boundaries of uh, intelligence gathering in a free society need to be debated. Um, there can't be entirely secret rules about what, uh, an entirely secret law about what the government is allowed to collect and where and when. That's something that the, the political system has to oversee. Um, and not just in secret forums. Uh, so I was interested in large policy questions, first of all. And I'll describe some of those in a minute. The kinds of harms that I worried about were, as you described, uh, the loss of collection in some circumstances. Let's say I didn't want to warn targets that they were being uh, surveilled. I didn't want to um, expose methods that would be irreplaceable uh, and, and no longer viable. But I did want to say, it turns out that some of what the NSA is doing has the effect of collecting, you know, millions or tens of millions of American accounts and the, uh, the protections against uh, misuse of that data seem lacking. I, I, I had a parable for a while, since I can't say what I held back, uh, since that would be no longer holding it back, I, I developed a kind of little fable to to describe it. But it went like this. Uh, suppose the NSA had come up with mind-reading technology uh, and planted mind-reading earrings on the mistress of the Emperor of Mars, and so doing, uh, detected the Martian invasion plans uh, of Earth and thwarted them. Uh, if I had found that in one of the documents, I would first of all say, you know, holy shit, this is a pretty big story. And it's an amazing tale. Uh, and there's certainly a public interest in knowing that sort of thing. But if I wrote the story, a sensible reader would probably say, uh, first, well, that's amazing. That was a close call. And I didn't know they could do that. And I sure am glad they did that. And now, you son of a bitch, they can't do it anymore because you just blew the operation. On the other hand, I would have to think hard about how I could write, not in the context of the Martian case, how I could write about mind reading uh, technology, uh, which seems to me to, would be uh, you know, a pretty large question of public policy. Do we want our government having mind reading technology? Uh, and you have to find a way to, to talk about that. So there are two parts to that answer I want to ask you about. First is implicit in that answer is that I'm going to quote from what you say in the book. You say, I am not in this context, a global citizen indifferent to the outcomes of national conflict. Disclosure of the details I allude to here would have caused self-evident harm to my country and some of its allies. These would have been valid intelligence targets by any legal standard. And I take it what that means is that you know, you're a U.S. citizen and you're not 
and you invariably take that perspective in deciding uh, what to publish. This is one of the reasons I believe why you talk to the U.S. government about certain stories to find out what the harm would be with certain publication. Cy Hirsch once described this to me very pithily as we're on the team, but we can't be on the team. Hmm. And so can you just explain this attitude? And this is, I think, one of the sources of tension between you and Snowden, but also I think one of the reasons that he wanted you to work with him. Yeah. Well, look, every one of these stories, uh, like any story I've ever done that had uh, classified information in it, I sought out conversations with the government. I would do it for my usual reasons, which are to uh, understand uh, the facts and the context for what I know and to hear other points of view or or missing parts of the story. So all the usual reasons that a reporter calls anyone. Uh, there was also an implicit invitation for the government to tell me if it found that there was risk or danger of publication. Um, if it wanted to make the case that I should hold something back, um, I was prepared to listen. Most of what I held back uh, was not a close call, and I didn't even bring it to the government in that sense. Uh, the very first call I had with Bob Litt, who was the general counsel for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, I brought his attention to the PRISM uh, program document, which was a 41-page uh, slide deck. Uh, I said, so I've got this document with the following title and date and author. Please get it in front of you and let's talk about it. And then one of the first things I said when he'd had it in front of him uh, was that, the, I don't remember the page numbers exactly, but I would say, for example, we are not contemplating publishing anything on pages 14 through 24, which included lots of uh, references to specific targets that were sort of normal, obvious intelligence targets and specific uh, discoveries that were made about those targets based on this program. On the other hand, Bob Litt asked me not to publish the names of the internet companies that were subject to uh, orders under the PRISM program. So he didn't want me to mention Google and Yahoo and Facebook and Microsoft and so forth. And I asked why. And his stated reason was, and also the stated reason inside the documents for what made them so sensitive, was that the companies might not be willing to cooperate um, if they were exposed. And to me, that was not a reason to hold back. That was a reason to publish. Not that I was trying to damage cooperation, but that I was trying to, uh, I was trying to return this question to the public whose consent is fundamental to government operations. I wanted, uh, let's say, if, if the damage consists of the public disliking something that these companies are doing and the companies responding to the public, uh, by changing their behavior, that is the system functioning as intended. So this raises the obvious question, and it's one you address in the book and that you've addressed before. But you acknowledge, so you're making the call. You and the Washington Post are making the call about what should and shouldn't be published, even though national security officials are telling you that some of the stuff you're going to publish are going to make their jobs harder and might make lead to less intelligence collection and might harm national security. So the question is, why do you get to decide? Well, there's a somewhat more limited uh, extent to which the, what you just said is true. We're not making the call um, on the boundaries of classification in general. Most of the time, the government sets the lines of secrecy, and most of the time, those lines hold. There's a competitive process in which uh, the government tries to keep secrets, and we try to find them out. And... Uh, there are some cases in which uh, we think it important enough to disclose the information that you find out as a member of the general public that there was a program of interrogation that uh, strayed across the line into torture or that there was flatly unlawful um, surveillance in some cases or that you know, prisoners at Guantanamo were abused. We we don't claim to be the arbiters of secrecy in general, but in specific cases, when the conflict comes about, we feel that our place in the system is to make an independent judgment that while we are not the experts on national security harms, uh, the government is not the expert on what information the public needs in order to hold it accountable for its policies. They're two uh, fairly fundamental interests 
that are clashing there. And when we have the information, we have the power of decision. I mean, you make a striking point in the book. You say, I am not qualified to assess the harm of any given disclosure to national security. And moreover, I am not responsible for the outcome. But then you make the important point, counterpoint. Likewise, the president and his appointees are not qualified to decide what the public needs to know to hold them accountable. That's the basic conflict, isn't it? That is exactly the basic conflict. And it's it's going to, uh, I mean, most of the time it's resolved because the government creates a secret and keeps it. It's when I become aware of something and sort of consistent with my fundamental mission of making the public aware of important events or policies uh, so that it, it can dip an oar into this. The, the public has the power to vote, of course, for representatives, but it also has the power to debate. And the debate influences policy, and it influences congressional hearings, and it influences the behavior of private entities like, for example, in this case, disclosure of uh, PRISM and disclosure in particular of the NSA operation overseas that, that was tapping into the links between Google data centers and Yahoo data centers. Uh, this caused private companies to make the decision that they would encrypt those links uh, and would spend tens of millions of dollars um, in a specific deliberate effort to thwart one kind of collection by its own government against adversaries. That's what public debate does. Now, the government would say, that's not your job. No one gave you that job. It's the government's job. The president has the authority to classify. He reports this stuff to the intelligence committees and the like. Your counterargument is, I think, you can correct this, is that the First Amendment gives you precisely this job. And I think one argument is that the proof is in the pudding. The fact is that there's been enormous reporting of national security secrets since 9-11, since Snowden. And at least our culture seems to have come to accept, the legal culture and even the government grudgingly, in my mind, it seems to come to accept that if it can't hold its secrets and if you get a hold of them and publish them, then you're going to be able to do that. I mean, it hasn't, for example, you worried about this, but they didn't go after you. The government did not go after you. It did not go after any reporter who reported any of this stuff. If anything, the government has become, in my view, more defensive about questioning journalists' ability to report secrets. I know that in individual cases, they yell and scream, but the fact is, is that our legal culture has not given the government the tools to stop you, and it could do much more if it wanted to. There is a uh, kind of equilibrium that's been reached, although I'm not as sanguine about it as I think you are. That is to say, I'm not as confident that the government will not uh, decide to choose a case uh, and to seek to punish publication itself as espionage. It's already uh, a sort of a distortion enough of the actual underlying facts to charge a source like Ed Snowden with espionage. Uh, the Espionage Act is uh, very broadly and sloppily drafted, and it has given an opening to government to do this, but we don't have an official Secrets Act. And therefore, if someone receives information that's classified uh, with authority, as Snowden did, and then passes it along to anyone who's not authorized to receive it, whether it's a foreign intelligence agency or an American journalist that is charged uh, and people have been convicted of espionage. Espionage is a very different thing from news publication. On the one hand, if you had a secret and the secret is blown, um, the capability may be gone. But think about the transaction here. A spy tries to maintain secrecy over what he's stolen uh, and the fact that it's been lost. He does it for the benefit of a foreign country, does it in at least the knowledge and perhaps the desire to harm U.S. interests. A news source, a confidential source who tells a journalist something, wants the whole world to find out about that and wants the American public to find out about that and usually does it for the purpose of uh, informing public debate in his own country. They're very different transactions, but they're charged as the same crime. I'm not saying that U.S. journalists are immune from any type 
of criminal liability for any type of publication. I'm saying that the line, the legal line and the normative line has shifted enormously in the last 20 years because you and dozens of other reporters have reported, this is just a description, they've reported on troves of very deep secrets over two decades now over and over again without any consequence, legal consequence, any material legal consequence. There have been things here and there, but on the whole, things that one used to worry about legally, uh, you just don't worry about as much anymore. And you didn't suffer any legal consequence for publishing this. And Dave McCraw said in a panel that I was on once, and I don't think he, I don't think he quite meant it as sternly as he put it, but he said that because of the WikiLeaks and Snowden experiences, that the legal team at the New York Times had come, become convinced that, quote, there is no legal consequence from publishing leaks of classified information, at least where legal lives are at stake. Now, I'm not sure that's even accurate, but my only point is that the line, had, I'm not saying that you're immune. I'm saying the line seems to have shifted quite a lot in favor of publication. And I actually think, I mean, there's a good argument that that's the, that's the right move. I'm just wondering whether you agree with the descriptive claim. I, first of all, I agree with this descriptive claim. I, I would say, I would date the shift uh, further back. It's more like 40 years uh, since uh, Vietnam and Watergate. Uh, yeah. There has been a fundamental shift um, in public opinion and also in the field of journalism about the trustworthiness of government. And so there's a presumption that government sometimes hides things that shouldn't be hidden. Uh, and a lesser willingness to take the government's word that no one needs to know about this and that its motives are uh, are always pure or that the choices it makes um, should be respected uh, in terms of uh, whether to do this or that policy. You're missing one important data point, I think, in your analysis, which is which is the uh, the charges brought against Julian Assange in the WikiLeaks case. There are 20 or so accounts against Julian Assange. Three of them charge him with espionage specifically for publishing for the whole world to see. Let's say the entire, the only element of the charge is that he published. No one has ever been charged with that before that I know of. Uh, certainly no one's been convicted of espionage for publication. If that is a crime, if publication is espionage, uh, then I am absolutely guilty of the of the same exact crime uh, and any journalist who publishes a story uh, that includes national defense information is potentially subject to that charge i hope very much that he is not convicted on that uh, he should not be prosecuted on that and if he is convicted and the conviction is upheld against constitutional challenge then the world will be very different and the government will have a new tool yeah, I don't share that view, and we we can move on to something else. I'll just say that I agree that technically, legally, if he is convicted of that, that it would have implications for the U.S. press. I've written about that. On the other hand, the government went out of its way when it announced that indictment. John Demers went out of his way to say this doesn't have implications for the U.S. press. And everything that they've done, both in the Assange context and the other context, has been remarkably deferential to the press. Now, yes, some administration could turn around if there's a legal precedent and go after you. I frankly think they could do that now. Um, I'm talking about norms, not law. I'm, but I'm simply trying to make the point that, and I agree it goes back to the Pentagon Papers in Vietnam, but especially since 9-11, I'm just trying to make the point, and you don't have to agree with it, that the, the baseline of expectations, both on the side of journalists and the side of the government, has changed. The reaction to the government's harsh and threatening reaction to stellar wind and the Bush administration was really much different than the reaction to the Snowden revelations and the reaction to all the revelations that came out later. And I think the government has realized that it just doesn't have the bullets, not the legal bullets, but that it just doesn't have the public support to go after journalists. I, I think uh, there's a lot to what you say. It seems to me that uh, there's abundant evidence that the Trump administration thinks differently about this. Uh, we know from Jim Comey that Trump wants to put people in jail, wants to put reporters in jail. Uh, he specifically said so in the Oval Office. And it may be that 
the Justice Department says right now that the Julian Assange case has no precedent, is not a precedent uh, or, a, or an indication of how they want to treat journalists, but that's of no consequence legally. The next time they charge that crime, if they charge it against, you know, my next story uh, five years from now, the charge will say, uh, I mean, the legal argument will say it's well established in the United States against Assange that publication alone can constitute espionage. Uh, this, you know, this was affirmed by the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court, and uh, it's the law of the land. And whatever particular prosecutor at a particular Justice Department said at the time is not binding. Okay, let's move on to the implications of the Snowden revelations for U.S. national security. You say in the book, I think Snowden did substantially more good than harm, even though I am prepared to accept, as he does not, that his disclosures must have exacted a price and lost intelligence. It seems obvious that it extracted a price, probably a large price, at least temporarily and in terms of lost investments for national intelligence. But Snowden said something in the book which I thought was really interesting when he, when you were making that point to him about how there must have been losses to intelligence, he told you that you failed to understand that nothing stays the same for long and signals intelligence. I'm quoting from the book. The global telecommunication system is the most complicated machine ever built. It's physical and virtual structures in constant flux. Facebook adjusts the protocol. Cisco updates its firmware. China upgrades the great firewall. Someone in Russia replaces a router. Any of a million things happen and something in the NSA toolkit no longer works. Every change, Snowden said, brings opportunity to. Sources and methods die every day, and they die for reasons that are completely unrelated to the leaks or OPSEC or anything like that. It's just a natural product of the intelligence process. NSA and the intelligence community are a factory for generating new sources and methods. That struck me as really interesting. I think it is really interesting, and I think it's uh, it's self-evidently true once you stop and look at it. And, and it's been acknowledged uh, in the intelligence community that that's true. Jim Clapper gave a briefing in Congress, uh, not in public, uh, but I got an account of it, in which he said that they uh, there had been a study in the intelligence community, uh, one of the classified histories, that suggested that every time that there's been a major breach or a leak of intelligence sources and methods, the initial, the initial assessment by uh, the leaders of the intelligence community at the time are that they tend to be pretty consistent. They say that we've been set back 10 years uh, and that the initial assessments of damage are always uh, exaggerated. Uh, they don't turn out to be accurate, those forecasts, that uh, the lost capabilities are recovered fairly quickly albeit for sure at some cost. He said, people will communicate, they must communicate, and when they do, they will make mistakes and we will exploit them. That is a succinct characterization of, of what the NSA does for a living. Uh, just because your target moves away from a channel that you knew how to intercept doesn't mean they're uh, moving to one that you don't know how to intercept. So the capabilities get reconstituted. But it's also true that losses of collection result not just from technical disclosures. Um, they result significantly um, from other sorts of pressures. If the Snowden disclosures lead to lawsuits uh, in which the um, NSA is forced to stop doing something, or if they lead to political pressure that causes Congress to ban uh, something, or if consumer pressure leads private companies to take greater security measures, any of those things is going to cause a loss of collection. Uh, but that's the system working as intended. That's market forces and, and democratic forces constraining the operations of government. Okay, let's turn finally to talk about you and your relationship with Snowden, which is one of the most fascinating issues in the book. You spent a ton of time with him. I think you met him twice in person in Russia. Is that right? That's right. And then you had what you described as hundreds of hours of conversations, mostly on email and messaging, I guess. So it's very hard to summarize the rich uh, relationship you described, but just tell us about the relationship, its ups and downs, and what's your ultimate judgment of him? So uh, the book is able to give you a, a sort of 
real-time uh, granular picture of how we interacted. I mean, I'm able to reproduce dialogue uh, in most cases because it was either recorded and transcribed or it happened in writing in the first place. Uh, you're right, it was it was mostly messaging. It was uh, over anonymous channels, uh, encrypted messages, and long, long, long transcripts of instant message conversations back and forth. So yeah, I got to know him pretty well. He is a very strong believer in his own point of view. Uh, he has first principles and he has very little flexibility about application of those principles. He's very serious uh, to the point of being a scold about his central propositions about uh, surveillance. He is confident in his own judgments. He is, I think, in short, a zealot. He's got an unusual sort of attitude of certainty about what he believes in. At the same time, he can be very funny and casual and profane and uh, stray into all kinds of other subjects. He's, he's well-read. He's an autodidact of eclectic interests. Uh, and he could be quite good company when you weren't arguing about questions uh, he wanted answered and he didn't want to answer. He tried to rule out nearly all questions about him personally and about his personal life. And there were certain other categories uh, that were forbidden. So there were times when he would say to me, um, are you purposely asking me questions you know I won't answer just to piss me off? Uh, or I would ask him something that seemed entirely trivial or innocent, trying to get him talking. And he would draw sort of a, a hard line on it. I asked him what he missed about the United States, and he's, he was willing to confess he missed milkshakes. And I said, okay, well, so why not get a blender? And he refused to confirm or deny possession of a blender uh, because that could give clues about the electrical emanations from where he lived. And he, <laughs> and he, he didn't want to uh, be located by the United States um, or other foreign governments. And, you know, I mean, he, he didn't fundamentally trust me. He once told me, I don't think I can ever trust you to watch my back. I trust you to report. And I thought that was a pretty good summary of uh, our relationship. And I was glad he understood that. There were times I mean, you quote uh, an NSA official who criticizes your relationship with Snowden. And this is a near quote. I think it was a she said, you're in love with, this, with your source and he's spinning you. And then you gave some examples where Snowden wasn't exactly forthright with the truth. You, you said that he sometimes took an instrumental approach to the truth. How does that fit into this picture? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, I always assume that any source has sort of a hidden agenda or, or an agenda that, I, in principle, I can discover uh, and that no one's reliable on everything. Uh, and I, I didn't actually count on Snowden personally as a source very often at all. I wasn't reporting on the things he said. I was reporting beginning with the documents that he gave me and then filling them out by my own independent reporting all over the place. I sometimes asked him for interpretation um, as a, a lead, but I didn't take him to be authoritative. And uh, there was one, I think, very significant moment in which he misled me, but I never wrote the story because he didn't demonstrate it. But he wrote on the very, in the very first document, uh, well, in a document that accompanied the, the very first documents he sent us, he made a claim in an effort to convince me and Laura Poitras that the system was as broad and scary as he said it was. And he said, solely on my own authority, I've been able to surveil the communications of the Gang of Eight in Congress, the leaders of the each of the houses and their intelligence committees and the justices of the Supreme Court. Uh, so he was saying that he had, he had spied on 17 top U.S. officials and that nothing had stopped him from doing so. I thought that was an extraordinary claim, and I tried to get him to back it up a number of times. I would have written that story if I felt I could sufficiently demonstrate it. But he always changed the subject or said that was something for later, uh, and there was no evidence of it in the documents he gave me. Um, I spent two years following up with him on that one. 
books. I would have liked to write that story. It was a pretty big story, if true, if one analyst could do that. Uh, and he finally confessed to me that he hadn't really done it, that he could do it, that he had done a proof of concept by, by entering as a selector Nancy Pelosi's public email address, uh, but it had, hadn't found anything very interesting that way. But he, what he insisted was, I could have done that. Anyone can enter into the front end called X key score, um, any selector they like. But he had to, he confessed to me that he hadn't really done it. And that was deeply disappointing to me because I had counted on his word in many ways. So the book is both um, very flattering to Snowden and critical in places. It's just a very candid assessment of where he came from, what he did, and the significance of what he did. Do you know if he's read the book and what reaction he's had? I do know that he's read the book, and I think I'm going to let him speak for himself about what he thinks of it. Fair enough. Bart, thank you very, very much. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Jack. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Audio engineering by me, Zachary Frank. Produced and edited by Jen Patya Havel, with music performed by Sophia Yan. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whichever platform you get your podcasts, and share it far and wide. And as always, thank you so much for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.